why is it if if a a young person has had some adverse conditions and you know it could be something as direct as abuse but it could be something like um they've grown up in a household where the parents are ill and unable to look after them not through lack of love not through lack yeah. of attention but just circumstances you know life happens um now why is it that if a young person has been in this negative situation we should then punish them for it Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Rethinking Education podcast. Today I am speaking with behaviour specialist and volcano of positivity Adele Bates. As you will hear at the start of this conversation, I worked with Adele for a short period a few years ago, and so I speak with experience when I say that the second you meet her, you realise that you're dealing with an incredibly compassionate, thoughtful, unique human being. Adele has recently written a fascinating down-to-earth warts-and-all book about behaviour called Miss I Don't Give a Shit, with the subtitle Engaging with Challenging Behaviour in Schools. Here are some of the things that people have said about this book. Ian Gilbert, a former guest on this podcast, wrote, Looking for a breath of fresh air when it comes to behaviour management? Look no further. With wit and wisdom, passion and compassion, Adele Bates not only puts the relationships between teacher and young person at the heart of the educational endeavour, but also gives that young person a voice. Close quote. The next quote comes from Melissa Benn, who I hope will be on the podcast at some point in the future. Melissa wrote, Adele Bates has written a highly readable book brimming with practical ideas, exuberant optimism and encouragement of experimentation. She urges practitioners to see beyond the so-called bad behaviour to the human being in context. This is a book that celebrates the importance of reflection, empathy and care, including the all-vital task of self-care, close quote. And the third and final review comes from Sue Cowley, who again I would very much like to have on the podcast at some point soon. Sue writes, This book offers an in-depth, detailed and nuanced overview of the subject of behaviour, with a particular focus on building relationships, helping pupils to feel safe and on teacher self-care, it is a must-read book for all teachers and will be particularly useful for those working in the most challenging contexts, staff in alternative provision, and those working with children who have SEND and SEMH. And for those of you who aren't familiar with those acronyms, SEND is Special Educational Needs and Disabilities, and SEMH stands for Social and Emotional and Mental Health. I really enjoyed my conversation with Adele. At just over an hour, this is a shorter episode than usual. Last week, I recorded an epic four-hour episode, so if it's long form you're after, normal service will resume soon. But there is lots packed into this conversation, and you'll come away with loads of practical ideas for how to work with young people who present with challenging behaviour in schools. As someone who has personally worked in schools in which behaviour was a significant challenge on a day-to-day basis, I really wish Adele's book had been around when I entered the profession. Before we dive in, a bit of super exciting Rethinking Education news. Since I started this podcast just over a year ago, it's become clear to me that I seem to have tapped into something quite massive. 
The fact that a long-form podcast about education reform has had over 80,000 listens in the first year alone is evidence of that. It's possibly a timing thing. The pandemic has given lots of people pause for thought, and there really seems to be a head of steam building at the moment around the need to do education differently. In an attempt to bring more people into the conversation, earlier this year we hosted an initial series of six campfire conversations, which, by the way, should resume in the new year. Whereas the podcast generally features quite long, pre-planned conversations with individuals, the campfire conversations are shorter, more spontaneous, live-streamed affairs with groups of usually between 6 and 12 participants. They're absolutely brilliant, and if you haven't watched or listened to those first six yet, I strongly recommend that you do so. There are links in the show notes. The campfire conversations were an attempt to bring more people into this conversation, but it quickly became apparent that the format is still nowhere near big enough to incorporate the plethora of important, valid voices with relevant and interesting points to make about this conversation. So, the idea of hosting a face-to-face Rethinking Education conference was born, which I strongly suspect will be the first of many. The idea is to bring together people in roughly equal numbers from five different constituent groups, mainstream and alternative educators, parents and carers, young people themselves, and the fifth one is a sort of miscellaneous group comprising other interesting parties, researchers, psychologists, policy types, and what have you. I love going to education conferences, but I often find that it's essentially teachers talking to other teachers. And I really want the Rethinking Education conferences to be a place where other voices are welcomed and respected and listened to as well, including, but not limited to, the voices of teachers and school leaders. This week, I visited a really lovely Victorian school in London called Addie and Stanhope, who have very generously and kindly agreed to host the inaugural Rethinking Education conference, which will take place on Saturday, the 17th of September, 2022 and it will be an all-day affair from something like nine till four. It's a really lovely quirky school in a great location, a five-minute walk from New Cross Station which is five minutes from London Bridge. Tickets will go on sale soon so watch this space and I'll also put out a call for speakers and volunteers for anyone who wants to get involved. But for now, for those of you in this part of the world at least, please save the date. It is going to be something quite special And as I say, I do hope it will be the first of many such conferences, not all of which will take place in London or perhaps even in the UK. We've also recently started having a monthly Zoom call for people in the Rethinking Education Mighty Network to come together and chat and conspire. If you would like to join these conversations or simply to watch them, you need to join the Mighty Network, which you can do for free. There's a link in the show notes. Okay. Without further ado, I will now hand over to my recent conversation with Adele Bates. I hope you enjoy the show. Adele Bates, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. It's an absolute delight. It's really nice to be able to to speak with you. So let's let's begin by talking about how we met, because unlike many of my podcast guests, we met for the first time 
in real life. And so we worked at the same school, didn't we? Which will remain nameless. And you came <laughs> to see me. Um, and it was quite an unusual interaction. And I think it shines quite, I think it, it portrays, like it explains what kind of a practitioner you are quite in quite an interesting way. So could you explain to me what it was that prompted you to come and see me that day all those years ago? <laughs> yes, of course. So it started off, we were having a staff training. It was a school with like, over 100 staff. So you can easily not know everyone, you know. And you stood up at a point and started talking about research. And this was the first time I'd heard anyone talk about research since my NQT year. And I was like, oh, gosh, that's interesting. And it makes a hell of a lot of sense that, you know, we continue to learn as teachers. Um, so I'd kind of, you know, I'd planted you in my head at that point. And then I had a class, um, I teach English, and it was a, a year eight class. And there was one of those students, we've all got them, who is very, who was very, very conscientious. And I had noticed that they were getting increasingly stressed and pressured and upset. So one break time, I took them aside and I said, look, what's going on? And they said to me, I think I'm doing something wrong, Miss, because every single piece of work I give in, the teachers always tell me that I need to do something better or I've missed something out. And this absolutely broke my heart because I knew exactly what this was. This was the blooming um, marking scheme that we all had to um, abide by, which was every single piece of work you have to give a what went well, even better if. And I saw in the, that moment the effect that this was having on a young person who um, was already conscientious, who already wanted to engage and motivate and do well. And and it really broke my heart that this marketing scheme had missed that, you know, and and you're absolutely right. This really does reflect how I, I approach um, teaching and education as a whole, that you can't have a blanket thing that's going to work for every kid. And, that you know, I really saw this in practice. And this kid was in year eight. You know, it wasn't like their GCSEs were around the corner. We did not need to pressure this year eight child who was already working really, really hard. And so I took myself a bit out on a limb. Um, I, I did this without my head of department's permission because I knew she said no. Um, but I said, right, in English, the next two weeks, you're not doing any homework. And of course, she nearly the, the kid nearly fainted. And, <laughs> and I said, who's your form tutor? <laughs> and uh, the kid said um, that it was you, James. And I thought, well, I haven't actually ever had a conversation with him. But uh, he did talk about, you know, actually this research stuff a, a couple of months ago. I vaguely know who he is. So I thought, I'm going to just try this conversation. And it was a it was a tricky one because you never quite know how people are going to react. But what I wanted to ask you was, is there any chance that we could do this in more subjects for a while? Because I could see that this young person was getting to a pressure point and I could see the early signs of, you know, anxiety that leads to all sorts of mental health, potentially um, issues. So I came up to you and said, hello, you teach this, uh, your, this child's in your form. Um, this is what I've seen. This is what I'm doing in English. Is there any chance that we could roll this out across other subjects? Would you be supportive of this? Um, I mean, I can't imagine, I can't remember your exact response, but you kind of said yes. I think you look quite surprised and said yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, it, I mean, it is quite a fascinating. Like, it's definitely the first time that anybody has had come to me with that. I think I could sort of remember being slightly confused <laughs> because it was sort. You know, like this idea of a reality tunnel. Have you come across this idea that we all sort of live in our own little reality tunnel, and then sometimes oh. something comes in from outside that reality tunnel that doesn't fit with our previous experience, and we're like. I'm not really sure what to do this. This does this is not sort of normal. Um but it, yeah, absolutely I would I supported <laughs> supported this uh this different way of doing things. But it, I think it's a, a nice way of sort of of, of painting a, a little mini portrait of you as a practitioner who's very empathic able to put yourself into the shoes of of students you know like not only sort of you know flying the flag and and fighting the fight on behalf of of students who are struggling for for other reasons because they're, they're struggling with the level of the work or because they've got SEND or whatever it might be um but you know like kids who are really you know just struggling with the way in which they're being being given feedback and also thinking about it now like it's fascinating how you know what went well even better if it sort of like equalizes everyone, doesn't it? So like, no matter what you've done, you're mm-hmm. you're you, you know you're going to be recognized for one good thing or a few good things, and also you're gonna we're gonna pick you up on some improvement points, and so whatever you've done, we're gonna apply that same sort of rubric, and it does seem like it's actually not a smart way of doing of going about things, hey? Yes, and I think, I mean, I was that student as well. I know that story, and I know where it goes. And I think that it's it's very different from the the students I, I work with nowadays are are peoples with SEMH, social, emotional, mental health issues, ones with extreme behavior needs. I work in PRUs, people referral units, alternative provisions, special schools. Um, so that it's not really their story. But this particular kid um, in this story with you, you know, that really was me. And I recognize how I've had to unpick that as an adult, um, that my education taught me that um you know you've always got to do better and you've always got to strive to be the best and blah, 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 blah. and i have seen how that's caused me actual issues as an adult and how i've had to sit with that and go okay where's that come from is that useful for me do i still want it and i've had to reflect on that practice myself so i think maybe in that particular instance it was it was possibly why i was so attuned to it because i was that year eight child doing that and and um over conscientious to my detriment um so yeah i think with with that particular instance i i I probably picked up on it quicker because i recognized it i see okay thank you yeah well so let's get into um talking about your new book because it's it's very much of a piece with this so it's we're allowed to swear on this on this podcast which is (laughs) which is good because it's called miss i don't give a shit um, so let's start with the title. Why have you Why have you written a book with such a vulgar title, Miss Bates? Such a rude title. I know. Can I just uh, just to be uh, really clear that I very rarely swear for myself. But I'm always quoting. Um, otherwise, my mum will tell me off. <laughs> so that title, Miss I Don't Give a Shit, it really for me encompasses a lot of the conundrums that we as educators have all the time when it comes to behaviour. And I also wanted it to be a bit cheeky and I wanted um, I wanted readers to recognise it immediately. I've read quite a few, I mean, I, I've read a lot because of the research of the book, but I read a lot of theory around behaviour and education and it can be very dry. And I think the word, is it pathologised? Is that the right word? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I thought, okay, that's great if you've got time to sit and read a journal because you're writing a book. 
like I was. But for the average teacher who has 2.3 seconds in their lunch break to pick up a book that might be in a CBD um, on the shelf, it's it's got to grab you immediately and it's got to say to you, I get you, like I, I'm there too. And I think that's that what, what really what that sentence does. And then on top of that, what do we do with that sentence? Miss, I don't give a shit is basically saying, I don't care. And I think this is very a very, very real um, tricky situation when it comes to behavior because we we often get this idea that kids don't care. And if they don't care, then where do we go with that? Okay, I'm gonna give you some behavior points. Yeah, but I don't care. But I'm going to punish you if I don't care. Like, where do you go with that? And so what the book does is it invites us to see what's going on behind that, which is obviously the key. Because every time you hear, Miss, I don't give a shit, it will actually mean something different depending on which pupil and which context that you're in. And that's what the book explores. And then how to support the different needs behind each one of those. So, for example, sometimes it might just be, oh, I'm a bit bored. Sometimes it might be something quite serious that you need to um, look into and support. In addition, it was really important to me that that first word was miss. Um, there are very, very few books written by women about behaviour in the English language. Um, obviously, Sue Cowley, uh, one of the giants who's gone before me, I consider, um, had her book, interestingly, also with a swear word in it. <laughs> yes, indeed. Getting the buggers to behave, that one, wasn't exactly, it? Exactly, yes. Um, so it's quite interesting that we're, you know, two of, two of very few women who, who write about behaviour and we both ended up with swear words in our, in our book title. Um, but yeah, it was very important for me to really land this here as well, because as I work with schools and support local authorities, I am getting a regular feedback that they want female people um, to, to train on this and to support this work. And often I'll get a call that says something like, um, you know, all our NQTs are women in their early 20s. And we're really excited to have someone, I'm not in my early 20s, but <laughs> somebody who that they can relate to in a different way. And I think that's really important. Um, it's a conversation I have in the book um, around who does do behaviour in our schools and where are the stereotypes and are we saying that behaviour only looks and dresses a certain way? And then we get the rhetoric, let's say, wider in the media, maybe from the current government, that says things like, be more disciplined, zero tolerance, etc. And these things come from a very particular way of approaching behaviour. And what I argue is that if there was one way to do behaviour, we would have done it by now. We'd have no behaviour issues in our schools, our prisons would be empty, and we would be in a Disney film. That's not the case. And for me, that's really exciting. And equally, it's really frustrating. Every single child that you work with will need a slightly different approach. And um, that also then comes into things like context, their home lives, whether we're going through a global pandemic or not. There's so many factors around behavior and hence, we need lots of different tools to approach it. So when people ask me, you know, are you against, um, you know, that the, there can be very two um, opposite presented ideas of how to approach behaviour, you know, are you against the other side, this, that and the other? Actually, no, because occasionally being very disciplined works for certain children in a certain setting on a certain blue moon for a certain piece of work. And it's, it's an excellent tool. But what I really advocate is that as practitioners, we are looking at our toolbox and, and getting more skilled at selecting the right tool at the right time for the right student. Um, so 
yeah, there's a lot in that title, isn't there? And I haven't even got onto the subtitle yet. <laughs> yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah, well, maybe we'll get onto the subtitle. So so the, the, you explained quite nicely in the first part of the introduction, you're talking about, you just said just now that, that Miss I Don't Give a Shit could mean 10 different things from 10 different students. And you're talking about the like what are they trying to communicate when they're saying that in perhaps not the most articulate way. And you give some examples. It could be, Miss, leave me alone. I can't read and I'm embarrassed. It could be, Miss, I don't want you to care because adults who care eventually leave me. That hurts. Miss, I'm scared to try in case I fail. When I fail at things, I get punished or I need to punish myself. Miss, don't come close. There are bad things that I have to keep secret from you. Um, Miss, don't focus on me too much. You will discover I'm not worth it, right? And these are all like, quite profound things aren't they and this the, the, the idea behind this is behavior as communication isn't it and uh one of the one of the chapters later on um comes up with that so this uh, miss you don't even know me i think that chapter is called mm -hmm. see mm -hmm. the child not the behavior and understanding that behavior is communication and that is something that is sometimes contended against by those sort of like the people who are more advocates of what we might describe in the way that you were describing as a more sort of masculine, aggressive, sort of like, you know, like people call it assertive discipline, don't they? Like, you know, booming voice, sit down, shut up sort of mm -hmm. approach, right? Um, and people often use that sort of like that phrase, behavior is communication in a mocking way. And they're like, sometimes bad behavior is just bad behavior. They're not trying to communicate some hidden message. They're just playing up and we shouldn't sort of try to wrap it up in this, in this, you know, in this sort of fluffy way that they're trying to communicate something complex that actually, you know, sometimes bad behavior is just bad behavior. So what would be your, your response to that criticism of this idea of behavior mm -hmm. as communication? I'd say, why can't we do both and do each one when it's suitable? and in the best interest of the child's education. So the example I give, right, James, you've got a headache, I've got a headache. We both go to the doctors. The doctor, she gives us both, let's say, a paracetamol. I don't know that much about <laughs> diagnosis, but let's say that's what happens. Okay, great. So temporarily, our headaches are both gone. However, your headache is there because, I don't know, let's say you had a good night last night. <laughs> right? And you're a bit hungover. My headache's there, let's say, because I'm premenstrual and it's to do with my menstrual cycle. So you can give us both a pill, you can give us the, both the same pill, and temporarily it may um, ease, the, ease the symptoms, which is fine. And that works to an extent. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes that can be a useful thing. But if we want to get to the root of why I have a headache and why you have a headache, and if we really want to um, remove the barriers for us to heal, then we need to go to what's actually happening for each of us. So you can see how we put this in a behavior situation. Yes, I can shout at a child. In my previous career, I was an opera singer. I can shout very loudly at a child. And you know what? It might make them be quiet might for some of them not not some of the ones i work with but let's say a majority mainstream classroom that might make children be quiet great that might be useful because we might be doing a mock exam for for example but if that's the only tool i've got what do i do when one of those people in my classroom has been through some adverse childhood condition um, or experience, has experienced trauma or abuse from an adult who has shouted at them, and my shouting triggers in them uh, a negative um, reaction in their nervous system, 
it means they have flashbacks, it means it brings anxiety. And guess what? They're not doing any work. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And so we need to see, we need to try to understand and be a little bit more curious, I think is what you're saying, as to like what's going on, yes. what's going on behind this. Um, absolutely. And so, like, do you want to talk about the subtitle? So the subtitle is Engaging with Challenging Behaviour in Schools. And so in particular, you're talking about, like, we're not necessarily talking about low-level stuff. This is not a book of tips about how to, you know, how to... Um, you know, tighten up, you know, like small little things. It's like how to how to deal with it when, I mean, as a teacher, I was teaching for about 12 years. I probably was told to F off like maybe a hand a handful of times, but I didn't, I didn't work in particular, mm -hmm. maybe it's just me, uh, but um, I didn't work in particularly challenging schools. But each time that that happened was really horrible and derailed my day and just you know when you there's some sort of conflict uh type situation where there's a child who is behaving in a very challenging way it can be so hard to to deal with especially when as as in my case you're not used to that you're not working in a pro you're not being trained mm. with you know with with like dealing with those kinds of behaviors in mind when it does happen and it does happen from time to time in 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 all schools um, it's you know it's really hard to deal with, and so I'm guessing that that was why you wrote the book that you're that you're wanting to give to to give um, some support uh, and advice and guidance to teachers who you know who find themselves in that situation. Absolutely. So my belief is that there are some fantastic practices going on in alternative provisions, PRUs, special schools, and. Um, I really believe that if more of that practice was shared in mainstream, we could prevent some of our exclusions. Because I see behaviour needs as an SEND. So it's a barrier to learning. Now, it can be a bit harder to get our head around because it's not like there's a physical disability or there's a learning disability, but it might be that there's some kind of social, emotional, mental health issue that is the barrier to learning. And as an educator, I believe it's our job to remove those barriers if we can, if we can help um, uh, our students do that and for us to differentiate our work to make it accessible for them. And most teachers I've spoken to, if you're lucky, had half a day's behaviour training back in their initial teacher training, and that was 17 years ago. And so they genuinely just don't know what to do. Once, yes, I mean, there are a lot of books out there on how to maintain a routine, how to do a seating plan, how to create high level expectations. Yes, yes, and yes. And what happens when that doesn't work? And I think that's the conversation that's missing, particularly when um, we get information from the government, from the uh, figurehead that they've chosen to lead on behavior. Um, they don't talk about what happens when you're when you're working with young people who are in more extreme situations and what we know from the pandemic is that mental health issues are on the rise in our young people and that behavior is getting more fruity in our mainstreams i mean this this term i have been hired in such a different range of places to do behavior training work because i've got schools saying to me we're seeing behaviors we've never seen before our staff, aren't, our staff aren't equipped to support this because we're not used to this kind of um, challenge behavior that's challenging our staff. And our staff just don't literally don't know what to do yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah. and, so, and so you're absolutely right. Um, I don't spend that much time in the book talking about 
you know how to set up your rules or how to set up your thing i i mention it and i i use it but then i go to the next step because i believe that that next step is where our education system at least in britain um is needed right now because we are i mean all you have to do is go on twitter and you just see the amount of staff who are currently going what's going on no matter what i try i can't motivate these kids or it's low level disruption all the time and nothing's getting through i see head teachers saying the staff are getting you know we've got an exhausted workforce so we need different tools right now and that's what this book um provides yeah yeah absolutely and it's really interesting that a, a previous guest on the podcast was talking about that how they had implemented a a really sort of quite strict um behavior policy and set of practices at their school um where they had very like high volume detentions um for sort of you know minor minor infractions of the uniform policy or for lateness or whatever or for not bringing a pen and so on they had like you know sometimes hundreds of kids in detention of, of an evening mm -hmm. um and and and, and this, this person said that it worked to an extent but there was a hard core of kids mm -hmm. who for whom it did not work yes. who were just like refusing to and he was like what well what can we do with these yes. kids like they're they're not they don't belong in a pru they don't they can't fit into this new way of doing things here and it's like the, the, we don't we don't know what to do with them and it was just this mm -hmm. continuing problem and so it seems clear from that example at least that the thing that you're talking about is absolutely necessary that you know this these very sort of you know zero tolerance no excuses approaches that we're seeing a lot of um, and we're also seeing lots of you know exclusions and, and off-rolling from some schools at least um partly because I think schools sometimes don't know what to do with certain kids. And they're like, obviously, this kid this kid isn't happy here. It's not working for them here. We just need to somehow get them out of the door by hook or by crook mm. because, you know, this isn't working. And so what you're saying is, well, maybe there's another way. We don't need to have this one-size-fits-all approach to behaviour. Mm -hmm. Actually, sometimes, you know, I think you talk in the book about the 1%, you're like 99% of cases you have a rule, but you need to have a little bit of flexibility because yes. sometimes, you know, um, you do need to give a kid a little bit of leeway because there are things going on in their home life, there are things going on for them emotionally or in their friendship groups or whatever it might be that just means that they can't meet your standard mm -hmm. that day or that week and actually that's okay you don't need to be you know putting them into an isolation room um as a consequence yes absolutely and i'm thinking again about your pupil from your forum group that when we do these blanket approaches we have a certain set in the middle that, that let's say it works for you know it does those approaches do work for some kids in some situations um and then there's the kids like your one in your form group who will take that as they'll take it internally and they'll say there's something wrong with me i'm not good enough i'm not working hard enough i've done something wrong and and it will take those conscientious ones that way and then you're absolutely right there's the handful that it won't work for because of whatever you know whatever life experience they've gone through i mean some of the children i work with have had things happen to them um think of the worst thing humans can do to other humans and this has happened to some of the kids I work with before the age of five. And guess what? Occasionally, that might affect their behavior in school sometimes. <laughs> and for me, it's I am so um, passionate about this, that why is it if, if a, a young person has had some adverse conditions and, you know, it could be something as direct as abuse, but it could be something like, 
um, they've grown up in a household where the parents are ill and unable to look after them, not through lack of love, not through lack yeah. of attention, but just circumstances, you know, life happens. Um, now, why is it that if a young person has been in this negative situation, we should then punish them for it? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. And, and so, but also I think going back to your one, the 1% thing you brought out the book, I want to give an example here as well. And I do this a lot in the book. I, I was really um, conscious of doing this, of not just using all extreme examples because that isn't going to be the majority of your young people. It is probably statistically higher than you think it is. If you're teaching a class of 33, statistically, you know, you will have several of them in there who are going through some kind of mental health issue or um, have been or are going through difficult home lives, probably higher than you realize. But then also, let's just take it to a, a really simple example. Let's say I, I set a rule, no one's allowed to talk during the register. And if they talk, they get detention, right? That's like a zero tolerance approach. And... I might do that and that's great and that works and it gets them all focused, they let go of you know whatever they've been doing at lunchtime, they're ready to, to concentrate on the work. And then one day, let's say one kid is having a nosebleed and um, another kid gives her a tissue and says, oh gosh, your nose is bleeding, here, have a tissue. Well, what do I do? I put myself in a really stupid position because if I say, if anybody speaks during the register, you get a detention. Well, if I need to hold against my rule because my rule is the most important thing in the classroom, then I have to give that kid a detention for giving her friend a tissue because her nose is bleeding. Yeah. And that makes no sense. And I look like a fool. Um, and then I have to punish a child for it. Like, it doesn't make any sense. So you're absolutely right. That's the example I give in the book that you have to have 1% for being human. <laughs> and what I find really interesting is that people say to me, yeah, but then it's not fair on all the other kids. You know, if, you, if you've got a level of flexibility, it's not fair on all the other kids. I have to say that young people have a much greater sense of adaptability and flexibility than the majority of adults that I've worked absolutely. with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In my experience as well. There's another, there's another nice example that you give in the book of a boy who turns up like for the first time in two or three weeks mm. and he's wearing trainers. Mm -hmm. And you're like, if I, if I adhere to the school's uniform policy, I'm going to cause a conflict with this kid for the first time he's been in in three weeks, telling him that he needs to go home and change his shoes. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to go well. And it'll be another three weeks until we see him again. Yeah. So maybe instead, you know like let's teach him and then like have a chat at the end of the day and talk about you know does he even have any shoes that fit with the uniform policy and just see how it's going mm. um and so again you can see you can see the need for that flexibility and and some people think that this no excuses thing that the opposite of no excuses is some excuses that you're basically <laughs> you know making excuses for the kid but it's just the wrong lens to look at it through, I think. It's just about being flexible. I really like the metaphor of bamboo, you know, it's like it's his flexibility mm. that gives it its incredible strength. Hello, listeners. If you enjoy these conversations as much as I do, and you would like to support the Rethinking Education project, you can now become a patron of the podcast, should you feel so inclined. There are various benefits associated with doing so, including a searchable written and audio transcript of every episode to date, a copy of Fear is the Mind Killer, a book about learning to learn that I co-authored with Kate McAllister, and at the highest tier you can access a series of four 90-minute recorded workshops on metacognition, self-regulation, 
oracy and self-regulated learning, which you can enjoy in the privacy of your own home or share with colleagues as a stimulus for professional development. To support the show, please visit patreon.com forward slash repod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash R-E-P-O-D. Alternatively, if you would like to express your thanks by buying me a coffee, which some people seem to prefer for some reason, you can do so by visiting buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. Again, there are links in the show notes. Thank you so much to everybody who's contributed so far. It's always hugely appreciated. Now back to our conversation with Adele Bates. We've not got as long as I usually have for these podcasts, and there's lots that I want to cram in. Mm-hmm. So if I may, I want to do like a whistle-stop tour through the book and just pull Brilliant. out a couple, a couple of bits that, are, that really caught my eye. Um, so first of all, just for the benefit of listeners, the foreword is brilliant because it's all written, all the words of kids. So you've asked them questions <laughs> like, what, what does the word school mean to you? Favorite memories from school, favorite teachers, you know, most difficult teachers and so on. There's a couple of bits in there that really, that really stand out. One of them that, that struck me was when you asked them, um, what does the word school or education mean to you? There are five entries and two of them include the word obligation. Mm-hmm. that's really interesting isn't it like an mm. obligation and, mm. and i don't think that they're using it in a good sense they're not like oh it's my obligation to stand up for king and country sort of thing <laughs> it's like no it's like it's an obligation it's like it's mm. something that you have to drag me into so that was interesting there was someone someone else who talked about uh there was a teacher that they'd found that was particularly difficult and shouty and it said uh, he was always trying to wind me up and then this this young person said, I didn't know what to do most of the time in lessons. So why didn't he help me? Mm. Um, and there was another example where a, a deputy head had said um, there was a meeting between the head teacher and the deputy head teacher about, about whether this people was going to go to a pru. Mum said, I have to behave really well and keep quiet. Don't mouth off. And the deputy started by saying he could tell how naughty I was just by mm. looking at me. Mm. And it's the sort of thing without wanting to, you know, teacher shame and all that stuff like it's the sort of thing that that teachers say from time to time and sometimes they sort of like it might just be a misjudged comment I certainly made many misjudged comments in my time as a teacher (laughs) and sometimes you sort of say something like that that you sort of like it's just looking back that teacher might have cringed and go oh my god did I say that that kid looked naughty just by looking at him what an awful thing. But that kid will remember that for, for a long time, possibly for the rest of their lives. Mm. Um, and so the, the, the introduction, sorry, the foreword to the book is fascinating for a number of reasons, just looking at it from the from the child's eye view, which mm. comes through really strongly throughout the book as well. So um, well done for, for doing that. I think it's great. And I learned some great language in that, in that <laughs> yes. chapter as well. Um, one of them being blags my head, which is new to me. Yeah. which I, th- I think means, like, does my head in. I think so. And, James, since that's a, a new phrase for you, then what I encourage you to do, now you know the meaning, is to find a way to put it in your everyday language five five times in the next ten days. <laughs> right. By the end of this conversation, Adele, I'm going to shoehorn it in. That's my challenge. Excellent. Um, <laughs> okay, so so next up is so chapter one is um, called Miss You Look Like Shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and... And it's about self-care. So why did you? Why are you starting a book about behaviour with uh, teachers looking after themselves? Mm, it's such a good question. So um, 
and it's the same question that one of my proofreaders asked to me as well. So uh, I have got permission to name him. Um, Ian Gilbert, who is the author and editor of many books uh, with independent yeah. thinking, um, he was one of my proofreaders and his biggest beans with it was like, why are you starting with that? Why don't you just put in some nice, easy wins around, you know, behavior strategies at the start, get them hooked in and then talk about that. And I went away with that and I kind of thought, well, you know, Ian Gilbert, he's written loads of books and he knows what he's talking about. I better listen to him. And you see, there's the conscientious student coming out in me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but then I went away and, and kind of contemplated it further. And I thought, you know what? No. Because I think one of the biggest mistakes we're making around behaviour in our country at the moment is that we're not putting the workforce first. If you are working with a young person who has extremely um, distressing behaviour, we need the best, most well-equipped um, people but with, the, with a real um, solid basis of, of um, experience and confidence to deal with these young people, to hold them, to manage them, to help them with their education. And so it really makes sense for me that that comes first. In fact, do you mind if I read an extract? Because I think I just say it better in my book. Yeah, of course, go for it. <laughs> Is that all right? Because um, I'm asked this question. Maybe I need to learn it off by heart. Maybe that would be the useful thing to do. Um, okay, yes, this is a book about behaviour. And we're starting with how you care for yourself. Why? Because our young people with behavioural needs deserve the best. These people have some of the greatest needs. They have some of the biggest challenges to being included in school, education and our society because of their own experiences and attitudes, as well as the discrimination and prejudice that are stacked against them. Therefore, they present some of the most challenging behaviour to the adults around them, and that gets tricky sometimes. These pupils need the most capable educators supporting them. You have a responsibility to look after yourself. And I know that as teachers, we're generally pretty rubbish at this, but that's no longer good enough. Whilst I advocate for an improved wellbeing focus in the education system's infrastructure, I also believe we have more power than we realize as educators on the ground. This chapter provides the first steps. You have a responsibility to be ready to work with these vulnerable young people, to be as patient, as understanding, and as human as you can with them. So too right we begin with looking after ourselves. If we can't hold a boundary for ourselves to eat lunch every day, how can we for a pupil who is who we know is on the verge of self-destruction? Yeah, thank you. Just uh, it glitched out towards the end there, but just that that final line is how can we hold a boundary for a for a pupil who we know is on the verge of uh, self-destruction? Yeah. Um yeah, thank you. So that's a, that's a strong repost yes. to Ian Gilbert's it, it is, Ian Gilbert's yes. well-meaning advice. And it is thanks to Ian Gilbert actually because because he you know questioned me on that. He made me go back and rewrite the start of the chapter. I mean, the, the original one was a bit wishy-washy. I talked about, I spent a couple of years um, ago, I spent some time in Finland researching their um, approach to education and their approaches to inclusion and behaviour. And I kind of started with this kind of wishy-washy thing. And then after Ian had kind of provoked me, I was like, right, I'm going to tell you why we're starting with this chapter. <laughs> and it was lovely because I was able to write it almost with his arguments in mind that he'd given me. And I think it makes a much stronger start. And then that chapter goes on to examine how do we hold our boundaries around our lunch? Like it sounds trivial, but that's that's quite an everyday thing that happens all the time for teachers. And then I use that model of how we build up boundaries and self-care boundaries for ourselves. Later on, I'll use that again when we're talking about holding boundaries um, with young people.
Okay, let's let's skip ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a chapter called "Miss You're Not My Mum." <laughs> so yes. th- these are, these are all things that kids have said, aren't yes, they, to you? Absolutely, uh, yeah. Which is brilliant. So this chapter is about relationships, and there's one thing I'd like to pull out on, in here, which is a top tip if anyone's looking for one, which is um, the, when you're doing the register, the mood in a word. Uh, could you explain what that is, please, for listeners? Yes. Oh, I would love my my dream is that we're doing this across the country. I think this is this is just so useful. This is a prevention to challenging behavior, tiny tool with no extra planning and no extra marking and no extra time needed in your lesson. Yes, it is that magical. Get on the edge of your seats, folks. <laughs> when I do the register, I do not need to hear yes, miss, or yes, sir, or yes, miss times 33. That's really, really boring. <laughs> okay. And so what I do instead is I invite young people to give me one to two words to describe how they feel. Now, if you are in a secondary school with teenagers, guaranteed to begin with, you will get responses such as this. Bored, bored, tired, fed up, bored, okay, meh. And that'll be how it starts. And then once you have built this practice up, and the young people realize that it's okay and it's kind of safe to just share a little bit, you will start to, every lesson, um, understand a little bit more of where these children are when they enter your space. And this, for me, is a form of formative assessment. Because if I, if I want to know where to direct this lesson, if I want to know whether to get the paints out or not, um, if I want to know whether they're up for doing drama or not, or you know, whatever it is in your, in your scenario, I need to know where these children are. If it has been wet break, if there has been a fight, I am more likely to approach the lesson in a slightly different way. And what this register does, so initially just in the lesson, is it gives you a little bit of an idea of actually, do we need um, an activity or an exercise or a slightly different way of approaching the task so that they are more able to do it? And again, I'm going back to that idea of barriers to learning. The barrier to learning might be something as simple as they're all a bit fizzy after that fight at, at break time. And so actually trying to throw them straight into a spelling test might just end in them all kind of calling up the ceiling. What's the point in that? Better for me to maybe, I don't know, read the extract from the story that I was going to read later on in the lesson, do that first, calm them down, then do the spelling test. Um, and then over time, it gets even more useful because, so the example I use is that I worked with the year 11 class um, for a couple of years, and I'd done this for the, for the whole time I'd worked with them, the three year 10 and, the, and 11, five times a week. And, you know, I got the usual kind of teenager responses most of the time. And occasionally I would hear something from one student and I think mm, that's a bit different. I know that that's the kid I want to have a conversation with if I get a minute, because there's something not right there. Yeah. And then going towards the exams, the vocabulary started to change in a way that it hadn't the rest of the time. I suddenly started getting stressed, pressured, frustrated, blagging my head. There we go, I got it in. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And what that taught me was that these young people were not in a mindset for me to give them feedback on their mock exam. They wouldn't have been able to take that information in because there was other stuff going on in their head. We all know what that's like. When we're stressed, it's much harder to take in new information. 
And so what I decided to do on one particular lesson, I, I think it happened actually two or three lessons, just this, this vocabulary kept coming up in this register, stress, 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 blah, blah, blah. and I was getting all sorts of strange behavior, like a kid um, dissected my stapler, really annoying. You know how valuable staplers are in, <laughs> in, North, in comprehensive schools. Like it's, it's a rare source to have a working stapler with the staplers. And he dissected my stapler, destroyed it. Um, very unlike him. So, you know, I was starting to get other signs that, that behavior was coming up. Now, this is going back to the point we said before, James. If I'd have just told him off for destroying my stapler, fine, I punish him. But what does that that do that doesn't solve why was he destroying my stapler why was this kid who doesn't usually destroy staplers suddenly acting in this way um and so what i did after a couple of lessons from getting this kind of vocabulary back is that i sat them all down in circle time and they moaned and they they were like oh miss this is well cringe and i was like yes and um i had a, a cuddly wolf i think my i think my girlfriend had won it a, a jubilee tombola or something um i had a cuddly wolf and um, we went round and we did circle time. And it turned out some of them were stressed about their revision timetables. They didn't know how to do it. Some of them were feeling really pe pressured at home by parents and carers. Some of them didn't have a space at home to do any revision in a kind of quiet space. Um, so there were all these different reasons coming up. Oh, and another one was that the assemblies um, were making them feel pressured. You know, those motivating assemblies that we have around exam time oh, yeah. uh, was making a lot of them feel worse. Um, so brilliant absolutely brilliant i had all this information then that explained to me how i could have the best lesson that would get the majority of them engaged and learning with, in their preparation for their exam and this all came from this very very simple thing that i absolutely advocate use the register and you can adapt that for your setting if you've got non-verbal pupils they can do i know that jules dorby does thumbs up thumbs down middle thumbs you know there's all kind of ways that you can adapt it as well absolutely gold dust yeah thank you this is something that that kate McAllister talks about a lot as well and that she's mm -hmm. been doing for a long time she, she used to be a, a foreign languages teacher and so your job at the start of the lesson is to figure out is your child actually ça va or ça va bien or not um, and give them a few words to choose from it's brilliant and, and this links to a theme that sort of runs through the book and increasingly runs through my thinking as well influenced largely by our mutual friend Kate McAllister mm -hmm. um, and this comes up in so in chapter two miss there's no way I'm coming to your class mm -hmm. um, which is just a very simple line but really sums up the whole of this really which is almost it's almost like beggars belief that this needs saying which is before people feel safe they will be unable to learn and you'll be more likely to spend your time dealing with behavior instead of teaching um and that's obviously the case isn't it like we we've, we sort of know it you know like goes back to you know like maslow's hierarchy of needs right mm -hmm. you know like people have sort of known this on an, at least on an intellectual level for a really long time there are there are levels of safety that you sort of need to have in place but but in terms of the practices that happen in schools everything is pitched at a cognitive level, right? Like, yes. like at the start of the lesson, the do now task is retrieval. So it's like assuming that the kids are in a state where their mental, where their mental and physical resources are aligned in such a way that they can even retrieve information from last week or last month or last year. 
And actually, maybe like you say, maybe there's not been, maybe there's just been, you know, some friendship issues. Maybe somebody just like stole something from their bag and they just feel really sort of violated, whatever it might be. They might not be in a place where their nervous system is aligned and they can access that. And so ramming stuff in at the cognitive end of the process is not going to be helpful. And Kate, I was talking to her yesterday and she used the phrase where she was like, we, we, at the Hive School in the Dominican Republic, she was like, we, we, we educate from the nervous system up. So it starts with like, how are you feeling? So that 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 mood in a word thing. But then Kate takes it a step further and sort of says, like, how are you feeling now? And what do, what might you need to do? Like, might you need to do some sort of a self regulation technique? Mm-hmm. And we talk about like three sort of override levers that we have: the mind, the body, and the breath. Where we're able to do stuff, we can change the way that we breathe. We can shake out our limbs if we're feeling really nervous about something and it's like knotting up our stomach. You can sort of do a certain amount of alleviating that just by physically stretching your stomach and breathing into that space and starting to you know to to change your physiology. And this is something that is again it's very widespread widely understood in the world beyond education you know if you talk to these like sort of self-help gurus right like people like tony robbins and the likes who are like whatever you're going through if you're going through some divorce or if your business is going down the tubes or you're in loads of debt or whatever it might be that's really bad crisis that's happening in your life where does that process start it's like how are you holding your body like how are you holding how are you sitting how is your posture how are you breathing? And like that's the that's the place that the, that these changes begin because you can change your physiology, you change your whole mood, you change everything that flows out from that. And yet, I see very little of this of this practice happening in schools. Um, yes. And so, chapter five, um, Miss, but I am being quiet, which is about <laughs> uh, explicitly teaching behavior and self regulation. This is something that blags my head. Thank you. <laughs> Which is the the like often we see the language of self regulation in schools, but people think that self regulation is the same as self regulated learning, and and it's not. Self regulated learning is about like planning an essay, you know, and figuring out how you might do it, and then you know looking at a number of different strategies, and then you know evaluating your learning afterwards and tracking it over time and what have you. Self regulation is squarely about monitoring and controlling your feelings, your physical feelings and your emotional feelings and your behaviours. And I think that we need to step up as a profession and really learn about this stuff because it's sort of, I mean, I speak with the zeal of a a recent convert, um, but now that I can see it, it's all that I can see. And you go into schools where kids are not feeling able to contribute to lessons. They don't feel like they can put their hand up and say something or volunteer or they, they feel terrified of public speaking. For, there are all these different reasons that that kids don't feel safe for whatever reason. Their nervous system isn't, isn't online. Uh, they've got the handbrake on. Kate uses the metaphor of the handbrake. She's like, if they've got the handbrake on, you've got no chance of, help, of helping them to learn how to spell or whatever it might be by doing a spelling test at the start of a lesson. And, you know, so first of all, you need to get the handbrake off. Then you need to figure out how to get them into gear, right? Like having the handbrake off is just the first step. It's not, yes. it's not all that's needed. Um, so this is a very important chapter, I think. The, 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 so the miss, miss by being quiet, the, the subtitle of that is explicitly teaching behavior and self-regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you speak to this chapter? What was it that, yes. that, that, um, that, that is really at the heart of your thinking here? I think um, 
what's the backstage gossip first is that this chapter didn't exist when I started. Um, <laughs> I was writing, you're, you're very right to kind of link it back to chapter two about safety first, learning second. So I was writing that chapter and I realized in chapter two, it was really talking about, okay, my, what I think is safe might not be safe for my pupils and it might look different. And I think um, it was so integral for me that this book had the voice of care experienced people in, especially when it comes to behavior, there is a ridiculously high proportion of children in care who end up excluded. So that link for me was really important to have. And there are two of the people I interviewed for the book are care experienced. And so that's really where kind of chapter two comes from, this very, um, on the edge kind of what does safety look like how can we foster it in our classrooms how might it look and you might not expect that's not safe etc so as i was writing that chapter i realized oh hang on a minute there's a whole other bit to this that i think needs a chapter of its own and that is this idea that for example i, I wrote an article for tez that was called something like um why can't they just behave because i hear this phrase why can't the kids just behave yeah and what we need to think about is that as a child steps into your classroom over that threshold they are all coming from completely different places and experiences so there's a really easy way to, exa uh, to exemplify this if i said to a kid okay it's a bunsen burner between four that's what it was in my school when i was there um you need to share right the concept share is an abstract concept. You cannot touch, feel, smell, share, right? It's it's a structure, it's a social etiquette, it's a, you know, I'm sure philosophers have another um, explanation of that. But what I mean by that is when I say you need to share, I, in my head, I know what that means. I mean that each kid should have a time each and they should share it nicely and nobody should fall out. But that's all subtext, that's me all, that's my experience from my life, that's what I assume. Now, if you put that in front of a kid who, let's say, has been in a home life where food is not readily available, it might be a poverty reason, it might be uh, parents, adults are unable to provide it, whatever reason it is, but let's say that the only way for them to get fed was to um, be loud, be aggressive, um, get negative attention towards themselves so that the adults remembered them and that they got fed, right? So they have learned that that's the way to survive. And then when you put this Bunsen burner in front of them and say, share, you can suddenly see how that becomes absolutely, even, like even more abstract because there's no frame of reference. And so this idea about teaching behavior explicitly and, and uh, self-regulation as well, it's again, it's giving the kids the tools. So it might be that in your demonstration of Bunsen burning, I don't know, I'm not a science teacher. <laughs> in, your in your experiment thing that the science teachers do at the front, it might be that you say, um, okay, so you share the Bunsen burner. So one person has a timer and you make it two minutes, 30 seconds, and each person has two minutes, 30 seconds. You are modeling what sharing is. You're giving the pupils the tools. And that way you are far less likely to have issues around sharing because you've taught what it is, you've explicitly said, you haven't said here's an explicit behavior thing, you, you don't need to use that language with the kids, but you have explicitly said what you need. 
And then, especially for, let's say, people with ADHD or people who have um, difficulty kind of uh, focusing or concentrating for long periods of time, we know that small tasks can be really useful. And that's, that's for a lot of learning needs. Um, and so if they've got something tangible, like you hold the timer and when the big, you know, it gets to 2.30, you stop and it's so-and-so. And you could even say they do it in alphabetical order. You know, you could go that far. But what you're doing is you're explicitly teaching behavior so that there's, there's more chance for them to succeed. There's more chance for them to share successfully and for the learning to take place. And I think with self-regulation, it's very similar. So let's say a kid comes in very distressed, throws the bag, chips the desk around, whatever. Okay, fine. So yes, I might need, and I'm, I, again, I, I want to emphasize this point. It might be that there needs to be punishment for that. There might be in line with my behavior policy that I need to do that. And I need to help them, give them the tools, role modeling myself, how they could deal with that in a better way next time, because they might not know, um, or they might have forgotten. Or, okay, a radical idea here, they are children, they are still learning. They're not going to get their behavior appropriate for every situation right every single time. Yeah. And I think that's something we forget, especially with teenagers who are two foot taller than you, all arms and legs everywhere. And some of them present as very adults. And I think what we forget sometimes is they are still learning and they are learning behavior as well. And I think this comes to another big topic in the book, which is behavior. Behavior depends on context. Um, and it was interesting. I had this discussion with um, one of the government's representatives on behaviour who was talking about how could we not just have a blanket approach to behaviour across all countries? And I argued that doesn't work because of culture. So the example I give is that um, I'm engaged, okay? And in general, that's quite a positive thing. And in general, I get a positive response when I say, oh, I'm engaged. And people go, oh, that's nice. When we go back to my partner's country, that becomes illegal. In 11 countries in this world, if we were to announce that engagement, we could face the death penalty. The action, the behavior is the same. We're getting engaged. Yeah. But depending on the context, because my partner just happens to also be woman-shaped, um, depending on the context, i.e. In this, in this case, the country, the, the consequences will be very, very different. And we've got to remember, this is what we're doing for children. So we're, so they'll have one context at home. They might even, it might be as far as they have one context in one subject at school and another for another subject. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying we need to be blanket across the, the whole school. But what I'm saying is we have to account for that. In my English lesson, if you bounce a ball, then more than likely that's going to annoy me. That's not appropriate for the context of an English classroom in general. Of course, there's always the 1%. They might be playing a character who is bouncing a ball. Um, but in general, bouncing a ball in my classroom, not, not great behavior for that context. Equally, if they're in an exam, I mean, can you fail for bouncing a ball in your exam? I don't know. Um, somebody write in, let us know. Um, but if they bounce a ball in PE, obviously that's a really good thing at certain times. So I think context, um, it's huge. And so coming back to the, the theme of that chapter, teaching pupils how to know what's appropriate for different situations. And sometimes they will forget. And that's okay. Because we're the educators and we're the ones to remind them and, and help them learn. And specifically for, for young people who have very, very different home lives, whether that is, so for example, swearing is always a fun one. For some homes, swearing is, it's part of, it's part of the 
oh, what's the word, parlance, parlance, mm. the language. And that's just how, you know, they communicate. And yet they come into school and suddenly they're told off for that. Whereas at home, if they weren't to swear, they might have the mickey taken out of them, you know. And so that's okay. We all do that. We all adapt for different situations and contexts. But as educators, we need to remember that. And, and this comes back to having, laying out your expectations. You know that in my classroom with the Bunsen burner, it's two minutes and 30 seconds. How long did you take? Three minutes, miss. Yeah, well, you know, it's, you know, and you have that conversation. You know what my expectation is. And that's why, coming back to it, giving really practical, grounded instructions can be so much easier for young people who are still learning to adapt to rather than just that abstract, be better behaved. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And and the, the, the need to teach this stuff explicitly comes through really strongly in this chapter. There's a lovely bit at the start where you were talking about an exercise that you used when you were teaching drama in an SEMH school called Are You My Friend? Are You My Enemy? Mm. Um, would you like to talk about that briefly? Yes. So this is an exercise actually from Sue's book, um, and it's you, you essentially set up um, dramatic scenes in which the young people either make friends or make enemies. So I set this up and it was quite incredible. I sat there and I realized these children, great at making enemies, had no idea how to make friends. And it did also explain a lot because, I mean, these kids have been excluded from mainstream at least once, if not twice. There was one kid I've worked with who's been excluded from six mainstream schools. I mean, if that doesn't tell you there's something wrong with our system, I don't know what. Anyway, um, but they, there are young people who struggle to get on socially. So it kind of makes sense. But what I hadn't realized is they didn't know the kind of language to use to make a friend. They didn't know the kind of voice tone, the kind of body language to use. So I actually abandoned my my kind of medium term planning and had to rebuild it. And we really took it down to the nth degree of I, I created little slips of, of vocab and we put it into is that friendly language? Is that, you know, harsh, aggressive language? And, and what was really interesting is they couldn't always identify it, which explains why. Um, I mean, the, the chapter is that title, but Miss I Am Being Quiet. It kind of comes from this example. We had one young person who always shouted <laughs> always <laughs> like when when you worked with them it was really hard to be around them sometimes because it was just like rah, 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 just always on that level and what i learned through working with them with this exercise was that they didn't even realize they were being loud they didn't realize so when i said okay why do you think that you know we were looking at voice tone and we were saying okay what why do you think that shouting is isn't great for for making friends but i'm not shouting was the response they genuinely didn't know that they were <laughs> shouting you know and all i can imagine is perhaps they've been in situations outside of school in which without that level and volume they are forgotten you know yeah, and so yeah. it's context it's context we've got just a few minutes left i'm going to mm -hmm. ask you three three quick fire questions yes. relating to actually i'm going to ask you four quick fire questions mm -hmm. the first one is what was the reason? So you talked a little bit about your you were a, you, you know you were that conscientious student. What was the sort of the reason? Is there one main reason why it is that you became interested in working with these kinds of young people? Okay, I'm going to do this as quick fire way as possible. So uh, in my previous career, I was an opera singer, and I worked in theatre, and I always worked in schools alongside that. And what I found was that with performing arts, the young people with the behavior needs were usually the ones who got the most from it. 
because I could give, give them permission to be loud, to scream, to run about. And I would praise them for it because they were in character and they were exploring and, and just the, I could, the difference that I could see that, that it made for them. Whereas the conscientious ones, uh, like me, it was sometimes they actually struggled um, with, with my performing arts lessons. Like they found it harder to let go, let's say. Yeah. And just through the years, as I was uh, working in theatre and then alongside that, I mean, I used to, I had a crazy time in my 20s. I think I was, I was working in a school four days a week and working in a theatre company four days a week. You see how that goes wrong? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I... I loved it. I was in my 20s. I had the energy. Um, but what I realized, I, I did a lot of work in Prues and APs and just I really enjoyed having this medium and having, you know, in my skill set, the ability to facilitate a safe place in which the young people could take it to the edge and could express themselves. And I saw how fruitful that was then for the rest of their learning. Um, and I just enjoy it. I enjoy it so much more. Give me a top set year 10 and I get nervous. <laughs> I kind of freak out. I'm not very good at top sets. Right. I, I, I like young people. And I just just to be clear as well, it's it's nothing to do with the academic ability. Some of the young people I work with be, with behavior needs are very, very intelligent academically. Mm. But it's about there was something about I I really enjoy this this helping um differentiate work and making it accessible, removing barriers, um and, and working with the energy. Uh, that a lot of these young people have. Okay, next one is uh, positives. What do you see that you, you can have one thing? What are we getting right with regard to behaviour management or behaviour practice generally uh, across the system? Okay, so one of my favourite things about our profession is that 99.9% .9 of educators that and colleagues and, and teachers and teaching staff that I work with care about the kids. And I find that really refreshing, especially after having come, from, come from the opera industry, which is, uh, has a slightly different ego, let's say. Uh, so <laughs> um, my, my favorite thing, the positive thing is that um, we care and we care so much that we get ourselves in knots and, and create these ridiculous binary debates uh, about behavior approaches um, that are really not that helpful. But at the, the, the fundamental level, when I'm supporting, when I'm mentoring, when I'm, when I'm working with the local authority, I see that there are people who really genuinely care about our kids. And I think if that is our foundation, we can work with that. We're not always gonna agree and we'll have different ideas and different approaches, but if we all fundamentally care about the kids, um, you know, we, can, we can move mountains. Yeah, thank you. And that is something that you see strongly that, like, you know, that behavior is an issue that, that inspires deep, you know, strong feelings for obvious reasons. And if you've ever worked in a school with challenging behavior, you know, you can understand why that is. Like, it's no fun. Um, but people on yeah. both sides, if you're in favor of silent corridors and no excuses discipline, um, you know, the, you do that because you care about the kids, right? And, and yes. likewise, yes. if you're wanting to do restorative practice and you don't want to punish them in the same way that some of the schools do, that also is because you care about the kids and you can see how that, you know, is, is we have more in common than what divides us, don't we? Yes, um, is a phrase that's come up again this week. Okay, so the next one is the challenge. What's the major challenge that you think we face in terms of, in terms of behaviour? What do we need to get on top of? I believe that it's this common mistake that we think all young people should behave the same. And this comes back to, um, at the start of my book, I put two memories. 
um, on the dedication page. And one of them is by my dad. And I remember him saying to me that, this to me when he was about when I was about 15. And he said, equal doesn't mean the same. He said, I mow the lawn, but your mum remembers the pin numbers. <laughs> And that really, really stuck with me. I think I was on my, I think I started discovering feminism at about this age. And I was going, why is it that you do this and mum does that? And you know, but I was really questioning them. Um, joy. Um, but I think that lesson stuck with me a lot. And I see it as the biggest challenge we have in behavior across at least the British education system is that for those, particularly those people who are in power making decisions uh, and, and have those kind of responsibilities, they assume that all pupils should behave how they behaved. And that's not the case because we're human. And I, I feel that's one of the biggest points where we get stuck. And then there are, there are various ways that comes out in practice in schools and classrooms. But underneath it all, I feel like that that is one of the, the major issues. Okay, so the last question is solutions. If you could wave your magic wand and make it so that everybody in the, let, let's talk about like the state sector, right? Yes. Because uh, that's something that I think is probably the biggest, and it's where most of these most of these issues are, are taking place. Uh, what's the one thing that you would like everyone to start doing, or possibly to stop doing? Oh, okay. Um, it's reflective practice. It's reflective practice. All the people I interviewed in my book came back to this as well. No matter what they were talking about, they said, unless we are able to reflect on our own practice, on ourselves, what triggers us, what upsets us, which things work well for us, which students trigger us, you know, all these kind of things, unless we can look at this and, and genuinely have the time and space to do that self-reflection work, then it's hard for us to imagine what it might be like for someone else's life to be it, it's hard for us to imagine what our pupils may or may not be going through you know unless you can you can start with that work on yourself first yeah and i and i think that that sort of is like it, i think self-reflection is important but to my mind that's also a dialogic process it's something that we have to do together have you got any sort of examples of what what does good practice look like yes. with regard to reflective practice mm. so there are lots of examples in the book so at the end of each chapter I have what's called an action box. So it says what you can do next lesson, next week and long term. Um, and each one of those, especially the next lesson, they're really small, practical things that you can do. Very little planning, very little marking. That's always my <laughs> approach um, to start these kind of investigations around each topic. And then importantly, uh, long term strategies as well. So you can you can kind of read more about those there. OK. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for sharing your time with me and congratulations on the book. It's brilliant. Um, it's very readable uh, and very packed full of practical um, ideas and examples and tips. So uh, I congratulate you for that. Well done. Thank you. And uh, and yeah, I really look forward to seeing where this takes you next. I know you're doing lots of work. What, what can people do to to keep up with you? You run a newsletter, don't you? Yes, I do. So you can jump on that. If you go over to my website, adelbateseducation.co.uk, you can find out how to join the newsletter and there's lots of free resources on there. There's also information about how to work with me if you are a school leader or um, a local authority and you want this kind of training in your schools. And I don't know when this is coming out, James. Do you know when this is coming out? It'll probably be in the next month. Okay, cool. So... 
at the end of November, I'm starting something that I'm hugely excited about. Um, all the kind of themes that we talked about today. Um, we, I have noticed, there are there are a large group of people who have contacted me around this book. There's been a, a great sense of community. Every event I do, we're getting increasingly large numbers of people coming. So I'm creating a membership around the book, and it's going to be an opportunity um, for people to have these discussions, to help each other, uh, to discuss, ah, what's it like? I've just locked myself in the cupboard all day. Um, <laughs> um, and so each month in that membership, I'll be giving workshops and support and helping people day to day. Because I think the thing is with behavior, we can have a wonderful training for one day on an inset and it's great. And then, you know, it stops. So this membership is really being created to give people ongoing support and for teaching staff to be able to come on and do that for themselves so they don't have to wait as well for the, the school leaders to do it. So that will be, um, there'll be a masterclass with information about that at the end of November. So if you're interested in that, then go to my website and you can sign up for that there as well. We would love to have you over there. Amazing. All right, well, I will let you go for now. Thank you so much. It's been great to chat with you, Adele. Thank you so much, James. Bye-bye. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change.